Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. This is episode 24. Uh, we are recording on a Tuesday this week because our uh, my co-host, Ward Carroll, Director of Outreach of the Naval Institute, is headed to Newport, Rhode Island tomorrow to talk to the Senior Listed Academy, so that's always a good thing. Ward, happy happy Tuesday. How are you? <laughs> you can't get used I, to the fact that I we're can't. doing this on Tuesday. I can't. I got it in my mind. It's, I know. It's You've podcast saying, Wednesday. Hey, Wednesday, all yeah. day. So podcast, no, Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. Okay. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, the April issue of the of Proceedings is on the street. Full of good stuff, as usual. Some Great articles. Amazing articles, articles yep. from the entire rank structure, like you read about, all the way from a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs to... Um, some sort of mid-grade enlisted folks. So yep. it's uh, fantastic. First, we'd like to say uh, happy birthday, happy 125th birthday to the, the Chiefs mess. A fantastic uh, uh, thing to celebrate and, and recognize. And uh, in this issue, our own Master Chief, uh, for Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury has a great uh, item that uh, we want to uh, uh, entreat the audience to read if they haven't already. Right. And Maybe we can get him on the show uh, before too long. Yeah, here. we'll get him back on. Yeah. Definitely. So that's something cool. Um, we've got a, a, an article on a, an issue that's been, uh, you know, stirred up in the discussion, uh, particularly for surface warfare. Uh, since the collisions last year, we've got Admirals uh, Mullen and Natter writing about fixing the career path of uh, surface warfare officers. Uh, they are... In one of the one of the uh, pieces in their article, they are addressing the XOCO fleet up model, uh, and in reaction to that, we've got a, a piece uh, today that's going to go up on proceedings today by a, a Navy captain who just finished a tour as a Commodore and was an XOCO uh, of a DDG, uh, and he's saying no, it's a good model. It actually works, and here's some reasons why it works. So that discussion and debate continues, which is what the open forum is all about. Uh, so let me introduce our guest today. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is like uh, having Professor Emeritus, Proceedings Emeritus, uh, you know, VIP on the, on the, on the show. Yeah, and he's a franchise player. This, this is a franchise player. So we've got Captain Sam Tangredi, U.S. Navy retired, uh, Ph.D., now working uh, at the Naval War College. Uh, Sam started writing for Proceedings as a Lieutenant J.G., uh, he was a surface warfare officer, commanded the USS Harper's Ferry during his uh, career. Uh, he wrote as as Fred Rainbow, and you know Fred took the editor's page um, in the April issue and dedicated a significant paragraph to Sam, and said, "Hey, um, you know the issue kicks off with this article by Captain uh, Sam Tangredi. Over the years, Sam has won four prizes in the General Prize or Arleigh Burke Essay Contest, always judged in the blind. Uh, in addition, he took home prizes in four other Naval Institute contests and has had 41 contributions in Proceedings Magazine. Wow. He's also written for the Naval Institute blog, the Naval Institute Press, and Proceedings Today, which we've had for about you know nine months now. So, uh, Sam Tangredi, uh, thanks for joining us today from uh, Newport. Well, thank you very much for the tribute, and uh, but I'm not dead yet, so it's <laughs> not time for a memorial or... Uh, Claiming I'm emeritus or stuff. I've no, no, it's a living, it's a living tribute. It's a, a living, living tribute. tribute. Yes, it's a rolling yeah. tribute. You're a VIP. Well, well, thank you. That's uh, you're giving me a swelled head. So, <laughs> Sam, how are things in Newport? What are you working on up there? Well, here in Newport, I have the grandiose title of Professor of National Naval and Maritime Strategy. So obviously, that results in a fat head, but. 
I'm also the director of something called the Institute for Future Warfare Studies, which sounds very impressive until you find out that it really consists of three people, including me. Uh, but what we are trying to achieve is we're trying to look at gap issues that the Navy and Department of Defense ought to take a look at that require decisions being made today or soon that will affect the Navy out to 2050. So when you hear future warfare studies, you think that, oh, they must be studying cyborgs and uh, you know, cloning sailors and AI and all manner of UAVs. And yes, we'll take a look at that sort of stuff. But basically what we are really trying to focus on are the decisions that need to be made today that will affect our national security out to 2050. And uh, that doesn't necessarily correspond with what I often refer to as the troubadours of technology. Those who will go around and tell, tell you that uh, technology will solve everything. We will have uh, self-driving cars. And of course, there's the third major, uh, the third fatal accident in a self-driving car just happened, I believe, yesterday. Uh, generally, the troubadours of technology don't tell you, uh, oh, here are the costs, here are the assumptions, the costs, the risks, and the alternatives. That's what we're trying to do at the Institute for Future Warfare Study. We're, we're, we're trying to say the Navy needs to study these particular items, and here's what the assumptions, costs, risks, and alternatives are for this particular issue future issue. So what's the hot technology? Is it directed energy? What 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 are you guys bullish on? Uh, we're not really bullish on anything in particular. Uh, te technology advances, and we will flow with the advances of technology. But uh, I worked with um, uh, Rear Admiral Wayne Meyer, the father of Aegis, towards the end of his life, uh, after he had retired briefly. And um, he would say, the world is awash in technology. What we need to look at is that which we can engineer and utilize in a cost-effective and military-effective manner. And uh, we don't look at, I don't look at any particular technology because the future is not driven by technology, it's driven by human nature. Humans use the technology. They're going to decide how to use it. When you break down what people think are advances in technologies or uh, spin-offs of technologies, you find that they, they support human functions that are constant throughout history. Uh, what is Facebook? Facebook is gossip. It is a, a way to gossip without having to hang over the uh, rear yard fence, the yard fence, and talking to your neighbor, but it, it's... It fulfills that need. What is Amazon? Amazon is a retailer. It sells stuff. Yes, it doesn't have brick and mortar buildings, but it's not doing, performing a function that is different throughout uh, the ages. Uh, those sorts of things. What What is Google? Google is an advertiser. It advertises on a different medium, and uh, instead of looking at tire ads in the newspapers, we're subjected to ads uh, as we search the web. But that's what it is. And so when I look at technologies, I look at what function is this going to facilitate? I hate the term game changer. There, there is no such thing as a game changer. We live in an evolution 
of military affairs, not a revolution in military affairs. When I say these things, people kind of say, think, oh, this is the wrong person to lead an organization like Institute for Future Warfare Studies. But in reality, I, I think it gives a, a perspective uh, that's very practical and, and very basic. Uh, if you looked at, uh, I often say this, if you looked at changes in naval technologies at certain points in time, for example, 1920s, look at the lighter-than-air flight, you would find that there are a whole bunch of people who would be very bullish on the future of dirigibles, rigid airships. There would be plenty of people who will tell you, yes, we have problems with the weather because it's hard to fly when there's thunderstorms and that, but weather forecasting is improving year by year, and someday we'll be able to perfect weather forecasting. And, oh, by the way, the metals that we're using and the structure of the airships are improving year by year. We're learning more about metal, metallurgy. So eventually, we will perfect this thing. Of course, when the uh, Hindenburg blew up in, in uh, Lakehurst, that was the end of the complete industry. The industry was dead, never, never to be resurrected effectively. Why? Because humans decided that this stuff was too dangerous to get involved. There wasn't a market for it. You had a, a complete market crash in airships. But if you looked at them, say, in 1921, you would have been very bullish. So applying that to technologies, uh, it's hard to see what will come of it because, again, we're driven by human nature. If we had gone with the technological forecasts that NASA was making in the 1970s, we would already have people on Mars we would have permanent moon colony because clearly space technology could take us to those places by now. Just the American people uh, decided they didn't want to invest their money in it because they couldn't see a benefit to them. And that's, that's going to be true with technologies. My, my thing about AI, uh, unmanned systems, uh, and the like, those sorts of developments is you have to place them in context of what you're trying to achieve and in context of what war fighting is going to be like. Now we do study at uh, Institute for Future Warfare Studies, we do have a major project that looks at unmanned systems. And the question we want to focus on, and we're, we're chipping away bit by bit, is if we're going to use unmanned systems in a high-end warfight against a near-peer or peer, does the fact that the electromagnetic spectrum will be jammed drive us to autonomy? Now, right now, everybody wants to keep, as they would say, men in the loop. And we don't, we're uncomfortable with making uh, our systems completely autonomous. But the question I want to ask is, and where, where we're searching and thinking about is that is great, but we control these systems well in a benign environment. What happens when you cannot, when you have to rely, when man platforms are relying on mission orders because they do not have good use of the electromagnetic spectrum? What do we do with these UVs? Uh, should we program, have already programmed autonomy into them and let them go out, perform a mission, and maybe they'll come back and tell us what they did? Or do we just want to forego that? 
our concern is in a high-end warfight, the UVs that we may be building today that require direct and definite control may be unusable in a near-peer conflict. And that's, that's one of the future studies that we are working on. But as you can see from the flavor, we're not looking at the technology per se. We're looking at how it applies to, to the conflict, how it helps with deterrence. We're looking at kind of the technology policy strategy nexus rather than focusing on what's the latest technology. Would energy weapons be a great advantage to us? Certainly. But uh, how many IOCs, uh, planned uh, uh, operational uh, at-sea predictions, have we had for railgun? Well, I think the last one was 2016 it was supposed to be at sea. Uh, that's over-optimistic. We're, we're always over-optimistic about technology. And what, I, what we're trying to do here is to temper the over-optimistic approach with some very much the strategic and warfighting perspective. So, Sam, let's bring it back. I think, you know, that, that's a great overview of what you're doing up there at Newport and in, in that Institute for Future Warfare Studies. And, and, and I appreciated being invited uh, to the war game that you ran in December looking at 2035 and the joint operating concept and, you know, some of the gaps, the capability gaps in that you're, I, I would, I would second what you just said. It wasn't about, you know, touting technology. It was really about the capabilities that the joint force will need and, and what that will look like. But in your um, April uh, article in the proceedings, uh, co-authored with Jonathan Caverly, who is a professor and um, a researcher up at the Naval War College, uh, your focus is on that the article is called Amphibs in Sea Control and Power Projection. And if I had to give it a, um, a bumper sticker, I would use the term that uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the phrase that he used out at West when he surprised the audience by saying, um, you know, that the Navy or the Navy Marine Corps team might need more uh, fast attack submarines because his quote was, we're going to have to fight to get to the fight. It, it's we're, gone are the days when a Marine Expeditionary Unit can get on board some amphibs and go wherever they want to go and disembark and go, you know, do their mission. Uh, we're going to have to fight to get to the fight. So talk a little bit about your article uh, and your collaboration with uh, Jonathan Caverly. Well, we really got started in that topic when we were supporting some work we were doing for N81 uh, in the Assessments Division in OPNAV. They were tasked with taking a look at three reports that were given to Congress in 2016. The three reports were mandated in the National Defense Act of that fiscal year. Primarily, I think, the brainchild of uh, Senator McCain. What he and other uh, senators and congressmen wanted was a look at the future Navy, the future fleet, the future fleet architecture from three different perspectives. The Navy separate from the organization of OPNAP, but kind of as a special team, the Navy pulled together a team to give a uh, assessment of what the Navy needed for 2035. And then also they wanted one from a federally funded research and development institute, which the uh, one that was chosen was MITRE Corporation. Then they wanted 
one from an outside think tank, which uh, they chose the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, CSBA, uh, established by Andy Krepinevich, and one of the most influential of the think tank consultancies that uh, work with DOD. Anyway, a suggestion that was fairly common in the studies was using the big deck amphibs as a supplement to um, aircraft carriers and how that could be. And the idea was that the capabilities of the F-35 Bravo, the short takeoff version, could be used in, a, in ways other than simply expeditionary warfare. So uh, combining that with my experience as CEO of Harper's Ferry, in, in which we actually conducted sanction operations against then Saddam Hussein's Iraq by replacing a DDG and doing that, it occurred to me, or it seems very obvious, that um, we can use the platforms and for this warships of all sizes in uh, multi-purpose tasks. And the problem is simply is simply this. It's a, it's a math problem. If we're going to fight a war against a peer navy, and we'll, we'll posit just for this discussion against the People's Liberation Army Navy and China and the South China Sea, there is a multitude of targets that we will need to to attack. When you add up all the DDGs and the CGs, you will find out that we have some somewhere around nine to 10,000 VLS cells. Now those VLS cells are going to have to be full of missiles of uh, various varieties. We're going to have, have to have strike, air defense, um, VLS launched, uh, ASRock, uh, and in that situation, there's simply not enough weapons in theater to be able to fight a near-peer competitor that is conducting an anti-access campaign against us using land-based aviation and rocket forces. It, it's just a numbers situation. Okay, so how do you improve our chances at deterrence? How do you improve, improve our possibility of prevailing in such a conflict. Well, you need more weapons in theater. So we can build up to 355 ships. We could build more DDGs. That's pretty expensive. But why can't we use the platforms that already exist and put these sort of weapons on the amphibious ships, kind of in a not-to-interfere basis with their expeditionary role, in order to supplement the weapons that we could bring into theater? Now, DDG sailors often will push back and say, yes, but an amphib can't perform that mission. And I will suggest this. Well, if, in fact, it's not going to replace DDGs, it's simply going to supplement. But what can also happen is if a crisis occurs in which there might be a high-end war fight, we can move the DDGs there and we could take the amphibs with these capabilities, these enhanced capabilities, and put them in the Persian Gulf or put them somewhere else where we want to conduct sea control missions and where DEGs might be conducting sea control missions, but the threat is less intense 
less high end than what we would see in the South China Sea. Sam, Sam, that's do the sea control there. Yeah, that's a very similar argument to the argument we heard from two Coast Guard uh, officers and proceedings authors uh, who wrote for the March issue. We uh, interviewed them on the podcast last week, and they talked about their their idea was sort of upgunning the national security cutters with some anti-submarine uh, warfare capability. Uh, not so much that they would go into the teeth of, uh, of a Russian or PLAN uh, Navy threat, but that they could backfill. They could be the bench, right? So when you send the Navy forward, what's going to guard the homeland or what's going to you know take on the, the missions that the Navy had in – uh, in a more envi- uh, benign environment. So that w- this is an interesting parallel to that conversation that we had last week in that article in the, in the uh, March issue of Proceedings. Sam, are you still there? We might have, uh, we might have lost uh, comms with you. It sounds like we have. Sam? Newport, are you there? I think I can barely hear him, but something. I hear somebody talking. Sam, can you hear us? <laughs> he can hear us, but I can barely hear him. It's not. Hey, Sam, do you want to uh, drop off and call call back again? Okay. Yeah. Call yeah. us back. Thanks. All right. For you watching on Facebook Live, this is the beauty of a live show. So Sam's going to call us back. Can we get going again? And we'll fix it all in post-production. Who could that be? How do you read? I read good. Okay. Loud and clear. Hey, Sam, we dropped, we dropped off to the, uh, the question I had asked was, uh, or I, I basically said that your, your argument about you know, upgunning the amphibs was similar to the argument we heard from um, two Coast Guard officers about upgunning uh, for naval missions, the uh, national security cutters that the Coast Guard has. And then, and then we could not hear your response to that. So start from there, please. Oh, I was saying uh, absolutely. To me, it's a no-brainer because everybody talks about we need to increase the fleet. We need to increase the fleet's capabilities. Well, you have a choice. You want to build another DDG for $1.2 billion, or do you want for a much more modest investment putting box and canister launchers like we have used in the past on the platforms that already exist i mean to me this is this is a solution this is true distributed lethality i don't i don't understand what the issue practical issue is as far as increasing lethality increasing the fleet's capability in a high-end warfight by taking advantage of the platforms that already exist. General Mattis, you know, Dep- Dep- uh, you know Defense Secretary Mattis says, you know, we, we need to use the, the platforms that already exist in a way that increases our capabilities. And to upgunning up the uh, national security cutter putting these weapons on amphibs, thinking about how we're going to put weapons and deception systems and other things on our military sealift command ships, our replenishment ships, all those seem to be, to me, very, very logical things for us to do. The reason we don't is primarily because of culture. 
Interesting. Um, so, Sam, what are some of the specific um, system uh, recommendations that you make in this article that you and uh, Professor uh, Caverly make in the article about what should be added to uh, to Amphibs? Okay, first of all, uh, the first step you should do on the uh, uh, LSDs and LPDs is give them at least a modest sea control capability. You're talking harpoon. Is harpoon a great weapon? No, in the sense that it has 64 mile range and uh, we, the Navy leadership has claimed that it's been trying to replace it for years. Now there are upgrades. There was a harpoon uh, block two that was made in very small numbers that actually is 134 mile range. But for a modest investment, and I, I was suggesting back 15 years ago that uh, from the DDs that we decommissioned, we would just simply pull off the canister launchers and the SWIG-1 Alpha, which was a control system, put them on space that we have on the LSDs, and uh, let, let even the crew pull the wires for the control systems, and then you would give it some modest sea control capabilities. That, that's like the first step. Then after that, we think about canister launchers for strike weapons such as Tomahawk. We had them on the battleships. Clearly, we know how to make them. Clearly, we know how to install them and control them. And that's that would be another step. The, the ships have the seakeeping capabilities and the space to be able to do these things. Now, General Neller, the Commandant Marine Corps, has directed and has conducted experiments where strike missiles, that is, a, a land attack missile was fired from a marine vehicle right down to the deck of the USS Anchorage LPD. That, even even putting missiles in conix boxes, uh, even firing them from vehicles just like that would give it some sort of capability. The, the question is, how do you control the missiles in flight? Well, there's a variety of ways. If the more sophisticated we can get on putting weapons on that, you could actually have control from E2Ds or from DDGs. And the, um, the amphibious ship is really providing um, an additional inventory of strike weapons. As far as the big deck amphibs, they are, by all standards, light aircraft carriers. If the F-35 Bravo is comparable in capabilities to the other versions of the F-35, and I have not studied the Bravo specifically, so I don't know how common everything is with the conventional F-35s, then there's no reason they cannot carry out sea control and strike missions flying off an LHA or LHD. Those are simple, very simple steps that we can do, and it's not taking the amphibs away from the Marine Corps as well as much as it's training the Marine Corps to be able to conduct a, a sea control mission, uh, the uh, F-35 Bravo pilots. So um, those are the sort of, of, of changes that I maintain are relatively low cost when you're comparing them against buying a brand new platform, particularly a DDG, that we can do to enhance the striking power of the fleet and to enhance our current focus uh, on returning to sea control. Uh, 
So those are those are steps I would advise taking. What what prevents us is, as I say, culture. Uh, on one hand, the Marine Corps gets very testy if there's any implication that the assets to the expeditionary warfare mission is being taken away from it because that is the justification for the existence of the Marine Corps. And I certainly understand why they do. Uh, but that doesn't mean that many of these platforms, uh, the, these warships can't be dual purposed. And, and as General Neller said, the ships will have to fight to get to the fight. There seems to be this, this perception that when the um, amphibious ready groups, uh, expeditionary strike groups, deploy, that they, they are protected by DDGs and they deploy as uh, um, in uh, being escorted by uh, surface warfare, other surface warfare platforms. Uh, throughout my entire deployment in the world of amphibious warfare, expeditionary warfare, I rarely, if ever, was in the company of a DDG. Now that is part of the fact that this is supposed—it was a post-Cold War world, and we didn't see significant threats. But the, this perception, the, the perception that we uh, operate, um, these ships operate under the protection of other ships, is not terribly accurate. They need their own defensive and sea control capabilities because they're going to operate on their own. That's 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 how they've been operating. The uh, many of them have been operating in split arg modes. That is, the LPDs or LSDs go off on their own missions away from the uh, uh, big deck LHAs and LHDs without their own, without air cover necessarily. So they have to have the capabilities to be able to participate in the fight, and that includes the sea control battle. Well, you mentioned in your article where the Marines' paranoia came from. You know, in 1949, uh, Joint Chiefs Five Star Omar Bradley stated, I predict that large-scale amphibious ops will never occur again. Um, and this is about the time of the revolt of the Admiral. So there was the Air Force sort of saying to Congress that you don't need aircraft carriers anymore because you had the B-36. And they were also suggesting that you don't need a Marine Corps anymore because amphibious warfare is, is over. Um, Marine aviation as its own wing has always kind of been under fire for why do you need the Marine Corps to have its own Air Force when we have the Air Force and Naval Aviation. So um, you, you do lay the groundwork for their paranoia. Towards the end of the article, to put a finer point, on the the small deck carrier thing because I want to get your thoughts on what that would look like. You talk about how the America class doesn't have well decks and that's kind of a problem for the Marine Corps. Also talk about their price tag of 10 billion each. But then you talk about this thing mandated in some of these congressional studies, uh, the CVLs concept. And it harkens back to, I don't know what we call it, the Jeep carriers of, of World War II. And as a carrier guy myself, I've heard these discussions in various environments about why do we need Ford class or back in the day Nimitz class, why do they have to be, aren't they very vulnerable in a, in a high threat environment, wouldn't they all be sunk, you know, in the first wave of, of uh, you know, enemy cruise missiles and, and so forth and so on. So what is a CVL? What, what, what would that look like? 
Well, before I get into the CVL, I want to uh, tell you that uh, I am annoyed by so much of the analysis that points to uh, large aircraft carriers as being very vulnerable and not useful and that we should get rid of them because rarely are any of those analysis properly conducted. The question on large aircraft carriers is simply one of cost. Do you want to spend 12 to $16 billion to build an aircraft carrier? But as far as usefulness, there is no platform that is not more useful because it is modular platform. If you don't like the weapon system it has on it today, you fly the air wing off, you make a new air wing mix, you bring it back on to conduct whatever missions. So uh, I always get annoyed. I, I, I'm a good friend with Jerry Henricks, but back some years ago when he wrote his uh, paper on carriers, the, the one that seems to have sparked the most recent debate, every, every five years or so there's somebody who will have a report on how carriers are sitting ducks. When he did it, he, he, he put in something about for the $16 billion, the PLA can buy so many uh, DF-21 anti-ship ballistic missiles. That is absolutely the wrong way to analyze it because if you buy those missiles, you also have to buy a detection system, a surveillance reconnaissance network. You have to be able to target it at the aircraft carriers moving at sea. That means you have to buy satellites. That means, I mean, the expense is tremendous. It's not a question of missiles versus carriers. You cannot analyze it like that. You have to analyze what it takes to target aircraft carriers an entire a network. Then you have to analyze what the value of the carriers give you in both peace, war, what their deterrence value is. So many of the analysis that says aircraft carriers are, are sitting ducks and they're not useful and stuff, they, they are not done. They they are not they are not thorough analysis. Let's analyses. Let's put it that way. But as far as the CVLs. The Jeep carrier is a good example. What you would use is a smaller deck ship to conduct particular missions that you want to conduct. The, the CVLs of the Jeep carrier, CVEs of World War II, conducted anti-submarine warfare, also expeditionary warfare, close air support for the Marines ashore, and those sorts of those sorts of missions, they they, they focused on that in a um, in a war fighting scenario. The CVLs would supplement the air wings of the large deck carriers by providing more aircraft, by providing that, and possibly by specializing in particular missions. In other words. If you want an all fighter wing on an aircraft, then you're going to have to put a mixed wing on a CVL in order to balance and, and, and perform the other missions that are needed to both defend the fleet and strike the enemy. Someone has to go after the submarines. So do, is the CVL a fixed wing platform or is it, what, what is it? Does it have catapults and arresting gear? No, um, most envision it 
as operating the F-35 Bravos, as operating the V-22s, as operating uh, helicopters. So that, why that, is it not just an LHA then? Because basically, I mean, it could be an LHA. Uh, I would argue in my, and we argue in the article that, yeah, you could use LHAs that way. The difference is what you have, the, the difference is the different mix in the air wing you have on board. Uh, you're talking about blue, Navy blue pilots flying missions off an LHA, LHD, conducting war at sea missions. You can handle that several ways. You can train the Marine aviators to do that, or you could put Na um, U.S. Navy aviators on it to conduct that. But in any event, you're performing those missions. It's functioning as if it were a fleet asset in conducting war at sea or strike from the sea and not simply uh, focusing exclusively on expeditionary warfare. Uh, can you make a CVL with catapults, arresting gear and all that? Yes, you can, but I don't think, I think all the cost studies that have been done over the last 40 years indicate that you really, Cost-effective-wise, you're really not getting an advantage over a large-deck aircraft carrier. Once you start putting the arresting gear, once you start putting the catapults on it, you might as well build a large-deck aircraft carrier. That's what you need for that sort of thing. The CVLs would function as the CVEs did. Hey, and, and Sam, um, so I'm not a, a pilot. I don't play one on TV. Ward knows that very well. Uh, but I did sit in the uh, the F-35 simulator, simulator out at, uh, out at uh, West in uh, February, uh, and I, I give kudos to the, uh, the pilot who, who walked me through the demonstration and, and helped me learn to take off and fly that, uh, that, that airplane. And, and he told me basically, he said, it, it doesn't matter which, which variant, it, they all fly the same. He said the computer um, system, the software, basically adjust for which platform you're flying but as, as an aviator sitting in it you, you can fly you know whether it's a, a c or an a or a b model you can jump from model to model really really quickly and easily and one of our um, editorial board members uh, major mike lippert marine corps uh, uh, pilot is flying the f-35 i'll ask him that at our next meeting which is next week but um i think your your point about the, the you know the cvl you know, being an expensive platform, if you start loading it up with cats and arresting gear and all that stuff, and really what you're talking about is, in your article, that, you know, LHA, LHD, with F-35, with a little bit of training, a little bit of um, of weapons mix, uh, could do what Commandant Neller said, help fight to get to the fight. That, that sea control mission, you know, help get the amphibs across contested water space. Uh, so that the, the Marines can get to their objectives as, as well. Um, well, I also think Sam's point is well taken that uh, the, the thing about an LHA or a CVN is the flexibility based on whatever airplane multiple you put on it, right? I mean, America, uh, uh, the CV-66 America became a, uh, a, a, a spec ops platform. You know, they just loaded up with, yep. with helicopters. For and, the Haiti mission. For the Haiti right. mission. Right. I was thinking that yeah. same thing. Right. Um, so, great I mean, example. That, that, right. So let's be honest. We're not going to introduce a new class of ship between now and 2050. I mean, the program of record to get to 355 is underway. We're having enough trouble getting Ford class carriers to sea. 
right. um, we may, getting we, emails to work. We may have a, a new frigate. We probably will have yeah. a new okay, frigate. Okay, so, but that's already in work, it's in, right? It's, it's I mean, in RFPs work. RFPs are being right. generated and so forth right, and so right. on. So I think the, the point that's well taken is use the Amphib fleet to better effect yeah. a, a more comprehensive, more uh, uh, rolled into the big picture sort of way. Right. You know? right. And, and, and I think Sam's right. The only impediments to that are cultural, which for crying out loud, we got to be able to get over those in, the, in this day and age. We definitely do. Hey, uh, Sam, thank you for joining us today. We got to wrap things up, but uh, this is uh, a great discussion and uh, we, we look forward to uh, your 42nd and 43rd and 44th proceedings articles coming down the pike. Uh, we know that you'll continue to write for us. And, uh, and Will we see you at that. the annual meeting on May 2nd? Unfortunately, I had promised to be a speaker at a conference up in Newport on May the 2nd. So I would, otherwise, I would be down at the annual meeting. But the one thing I want to say that all Naval Institute members and those people who are not members but ought to be members need to realize that there has not been an idea ever adopted by the Navy and possibly the Marine Corps. I have to look. Look, have a look at that closely, that did not first appear sometime before in the pages of proceedings. Not a single idea. So if you want, if they want to really read about the future of the Navy, they read proceedings. And I am always shocked by how many naval professionals aren't members of the Naval Institute, including flag officers. It's like, shame on you. You know, if you, you keep talking about wanting to know what does the future look like, read proceedings, and you will find the ideas that will shape the future of the Navy. Wow, that is beautiful. Could, right could, on. Couldn't wrap it up any better That's than that. Right I mean, it, it, the only thing you could have added to that, Sam, is our, our motto, which is victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. And with that, we'll end it here. Uh, thanks again, Sam, for joining us, and thanks for our listeners, and uh, we look forward to next week. Thank you.